We're going to continue in, uh, in the book of Romans. So if you'll turn to, to, to Romans chapter 3, we're studying uh, Romans as making sense of what matters most, talking about the gospel, making sense of what matters most. Uh, as we look at the outline of the book of Romans, we start with, with the doctrine of sin. Before we can understand the gospel, we really have to have a deep understanding of sin. Today, we are going to finish the doctrine of sin so we can move on to so, some other exciting parts of the, of the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to getting out of sin. Anyone else? Right. Yeah, you've been in sin long enough, right? So, Of course we've been in, in, in sin, and it's, in, in it's difficult, but it's so essential. And I hope that for you, as we've been studying Romans 1, 2, and 3... That, you, that we've developed a theological framework for understanding the world around us. Has that done that for you? As it has for me? To, to understand the doctrine of sin really gives us this theological understanding of the world around us. But I hope it's done more than that. I hope it's also given you a, a theological understanding of the battle that goes on within us as well. Because when we think of sin and we think of of all the terrible things. We think of what's going on around us, but sometimes we forget to realize it's also what's going on inside of us. Last week we talked about what the law is not and the purpose of the law. God's written word, what a blessing it is to have God's written word. And we know what's true, we know what's false, we know what's right, we know what's wrong because we have God's word. But we have to be careful that we don't misuse the law. And last week we talked about how the law is not a list of requirements for salvation. You can't say, well, now that I understand what's right and wrong, I'm going to work my way up to becoming a person who is worthy and deserving of heaven. Has anyone ever done that aside from Christ? No. And when we realize it is not. Uh, it is not a list of requirements for salvation. In fact, uh, some people look at it as a lifeline, but it's not a lifeline. The law, is, the gospel is, but the law is not. It's actually more like the seaweed that pulls you down. It's, it's not a lifeline. The second thing we saw last week is that the law is not a standard for bragging rights. Remember what the, the hypocrites and the Pharisees were doing? They would build this standard of right and wrong and they would judge each other on it and and no matter where they were on that standard they would at least be able to point to someone lower than than them and say at least I'm better than that hey I am more obedient than you and that was the attitude we call it the holier than thou attitude right you've heard that before And, and that's not what the law was created for either the law does not exist for us to be able to judge other, other people so that we feel good about ourselves. And, and Paul said the problem with the Jews at this point was that they were resting in the law when the law should be causing discomfort. Because discomfort is the first step in making a positive change if we, if we understand the context of the gospel. Now, this, uh, as you can imagine, sparked a lot of questions from the religious Jews, Right? I mean, they built their entire system, was built on these two concepts. You earn salvation, and then you become good enough that you can point your finger at everybody else. That was the entire system. And so you earned credit by following the law. And they wanted to earn more credit, so then they made the law stricter than what God made the law. Think about that. They made it stricter. They start coming up with all these rules, like the Bible says, for example, uh, to take a day off, right? The Sabbath day, so you can focus on the Lord. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. What did they do? Well, we have to define work because we're not supposed to work. And if you spit on the ground, that's work because you're 
fertilizing the soil. Right? And if you do anything that requires two hands, that's work. So you can't. And so they think they're earning credit in their system of religion by doing everything one-handed that day. They would also count their steps outside their house. You're not allowed more than 200 steps. That's a religious system. And you could, you could earn credit with God. And, and so then Paul comes along and says, guess what? That's not what the law is for. You're not earning any credit with God. And so the, the Jews asked all these questions. Wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. And so Paul knows, being a, being a previous Jew himself, knew what questions they were going to ask. And so he asks the questions before they have a chance to do that. That's what we find in Romans chapter 3. Multiple questions by the Jews, and Paul answers them all. And so they're looking at this as a bragging right. Like, hey, I've got my, this is my opportunity to show my superiority over others, and you're taking that away from me, Paul. So they asked a question like, then what advantage is it to have the law? Were the Jews the ones with the law? What advantage is it? And let's read in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Uh, So the the, um, question that they're asking is, what, what advantage do we have as Jews? If you can't get saved by the law? You can't get bragging rights by the law? Then what, what's the point of having the law to begin with? Wouldn't we be better without the law? That's kind of the implication of what they're saying. And why, why, do we have, why are we doing all these rules? It's a good question. Paul goes on to answer that question in verses 2 through 4. This is what we read. Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So, so the question that they're asking is, is, is there any advantage to having the law? And he says, yes, the oracles of God. You have the very words of God. There's some huge advantages that go with that. And in other words, they're asking the question, was God unfaithful to his promises to the Jews because he, he punished the Jews? I mean, some, did un, some were unbelievers, right? So if you go all the way back to the Old Testament times, uh, you have a system of, of obedience that brought blessing. Remember in Deuteronomy, they set up uh, the, uh, the blessings and the curses, and they said, if you obey God, this is the list of things that God's going to do for you. And when they were obedient to God, did God do all of those things? The last book that we studied together as a church was the book of Joshua. Did we see God come through on every single one of those promises? Amen. But then in Deuteronomy, we also see where he said, if you disobey, then these are going to be the consequences of disobedience. And if you continue reading through the book of Judges, if you continue reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, do you see the result of their disobedience? And so in both cases, Paul's saying it, it's an advantage to have the law because you know what's right and wrong. And, and so <clears throat> the, the argument was basically that if, if we do wrong and God punishes us for us, then we're, we're still showing the world something good about God. So why in the world are we being punished? Why should we be punished for that when we're still lifting up the Lord in one way or another. 
Well, look at verse 4 again. It's, it's already up on the screen. It says, certainly not. See, that idea is false. In fact, this is a strong way of saying certainly not. Uh, there's uh, two different words for not in Greek, u and me. And this is ume. It's like saying an emphatic not. Right? You can picture Paul saying, so why don't you believe this? Not. Right? He's, this absolutely not. We find Paul doing that ten times just in the book of Romans. But he says, indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. Let me just stop there for a moment. There's a little incidental truth in this passage that I want to talk about. When I, when I talk about an incidental truth, I mean, it's not the main portion of the text, but it's something that Paul taps into that he, he says, this is, a truth, this is true, and it's the assumption in the text to make his point. But look at what, how he introduces his point. He said, let God be true, but every man, what? A liar. What he's saying here is that what God says is the standard of truth, even if every man disagrees with it. Think about that for a second. There's some profound implications to that concept. Let God be true and every man be a liar. What it teaches us is that truth is not up for a vote. Did you know that? Truth is not up for a vote. Even if it's by five justices of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Right? Can they vote a new definition of an institution that God created, like marriage? No, they can't do that. That's up to God. It's his institution, his definition. But somehow along the way, we've come along, the, we've gotten this idea that if, if we get enough people on our side, we can outvote God doesn't work that way right it's still his creation it's still the truth is his truth it all belongs to him you know i i uh, was watching fox news the other day and uh and, and if you've watched fox news at all i try to watch a little bit of all of the networks just to to see how much i can stomach <laughs> and uh, i was watching watching fox news and and here their big slogan is we report you decide you heard that? I hate to break it to Fox News. But you report, we don't decide. We opine. Right? We can't decide what is true. But there's this idea that we can report, we give you the facts, and you decide what's true. No. Truth is truth. We can recognize it as truth, or we can miss it. We can opine. We can give our opinion. That's it. Right? Now, you should hear some of the stuff I heard on some of the other networks that were even worse, but, uh, but that's that idea that if we get enough people to sign on something that makes it true, it does not make it true. You get enough people to say that abortion isn't murder, it's still murder, is it not? The Dalai Lama uh, recently said that if science discovers anything that contradicts Hinduism, then it's Hinduism that will have to change. Why? Now, I don't agree with Hinduism, but I totally disagree with the idea that, well, if you get enough people saying that this is the truth, then you have to change. You have to, the truth changes. No, the truth doesn't change. Let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, we should stand up for what's true, even if every other human being on the planet says it's false. Amen. Wow, what, a, what an incidental truth. That isn't even the main point of what Paul is saying here. 
But I want us to make sure we understand that. He introduces his thought with that. Then he goes into the second half of verse, verse 4, and he says that you, talking about God, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. He's saying, doesn't matter what anybody says, they can judge God all they want, they can say everything they want to say about how good or right God is, but guess what? When it all comes down to it, God will be justified in his judgment. God will be justified in his judgment. This is actually a quote that, that Paul is u- using of a Jew. He's quoting David. This is from Psalm 51. So to understand what he's getting at, I think we have to go back to Psalm 51. Does that make sense? So to do that, you might remember the occasion that was, that, why this was written. Remember the sin with David and Bathsheba? David uh, sent everyone else off to war. And, and then from his rooftop, he saw a woman bathing, and he lusted after her, he wanted her. Uh, and so to make a long story short, he ended up having the husband killed so that he could marry her and hide the fact that, that he was having a baby with Bathsheba. You, you know the story. The story that follows immediately after that, and if, see, the story of David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12, you have the story of David being confronted by the prophet Nathan. See, at the end of chapter 11, everything seems to be going pretty well for David. I mean, he did what was wrong. He committed adultery. He committed murder. And he hid all of his sins. He's doing everything wrong, but it seems like everything's going well. He got the girl in the end, right? And he thought he got away with it. But then chapter 12 comes along, and Nathan confronts him. And you know the story. Nathan says to David, what if a Man had only one sheep. And he said, there's a man, he only has one sheep. And he loves that sheep. It's the family pet. And then this other man has a bunch of sheep. I mean, he's got tons of sheep, as many sheep as he can, as he can count. And that man has, decides to have a party. So he steals the sheep from his neighbor and sacrifices it so he could have a party at his house. And David immediately says, oh, that's horrible. And he, he goes from being judge, jury, executioner, all in one foul so he says, he's guilty, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan points the finger at him. And that's the moment that you see it uh, portrayed in this picture. And you have that finger pointed at him and says, David, you are that man. Wow. What a strong confrontation. It was in that context that David wrote Psalm 51. And look at these words. And this is what we find quoted in, in Romans 3. I want you to read along with me. Verses 1 through 4. You don't have to read it out loud, but... Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And there's where we have the quote from Romans chapter 3. That's what was going on. You see, Paul is saying that the purpose of the law is really the same purpose as Nathan's confrontation of David. It's a type of confrontation to let us see something about ourselves. You know, David put it very poetically uh, in, in verses 1 through 4. He was very poetic about it. I want to look at it in, in chronological order because there's four things here, and I think this will show us the four purposes of the law. Uh, so when we think, what is the purpose of the law? We find it in the example 
of David's confrontation by Nathan. The first one, it's to help us acknowledge our sin. It's to help us acknowledge our sin. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 51. It says, For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. You know, if we don't recognize our sinfulness, we can never understand salvation. If we don't, if we don't understand. But David, actually, if you read further in the psalm, he said, it kept me up at night. My bones hurt because I understand the depth of my sin. When's the last time you physically felt ill because you knew you had offended your God? That's what the law was, is intended to do. And, and so, for David, he acknowledged his sin. But you know, that's, that's such an essential element of understanding the gospel. And if we try to bypass the repentance, if we try to bypass the, the regret, if we try to bypass understanding what sin is about, then you can't, you can't take a shortcut in the gospel. There are no shortcuts in the gospel. To help us acknowledge our sin. The second purpose that we find in Psalm 51 is to justify God's judgment upon us. Not only to know that we, that we are sinners, but understand that God is just to punish us. Look what he said in verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. What is he saying? Lord, you could take my life right now and you would be just. You would be blameless. Now that's a new understanding. Chapter 11, did David see it that way? Not at all. Nathan confronts him with the law and all of a sudden David realizes, I deserve death. God, does, God would be just to condemn me. The same sentence that he was ready to pass on this fictional character that stole his neighbor's sheep. Now all of a sudden he realizes that's himself. To justify God's judgment upon us. The third, the third one is, a, is entering a new category. In a sense, for many people, only these first two will apply. For many people, uh, they will, it'll help them understand their, their sin. It'll justify God's judgment upon them. In fact, the, the scripture says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Isn't that true? Does that mean that every person is going to get saved? No, it doesn't. So what does that mean? That at some point, either when it's too late or before it's too late, everyone will recognize God was just. God is just in condemning me. That's a... That's a, that's a a sobering thought, is it not? And, but the third one will apply to some. And that is to incite us to beg for mercy. Look at the way David put it in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. He recognizes the sin. He said, I want that gone. Lord, please have mercy on me. That's what it's about. The law exists not so we can brag and think, hey, I'm better than you. Hey, my sins aren't as bad as your sins. It's for us to not focus on other people, but to focus on myself and say, wow, I deserve, I'm a sinner. I deserve to be punished. Lord, I beg you for mercy. That's what the law is supposed to do. And then finally, to give us a desire to be clean. 
to give us a desire to be clean. Look what he said in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I may have shared this story in a different context, but when I was working up at Lake Ann Camp uh, as a program director, we used to take junior hires to the bog, and we'd have to walk about three-quarters of a mile, maybe, something like that, uh, to the bog, and, uh, and we would take them to a spot where, where they would literally jump into the, into the bog, and they would go over their head, and then we'd pull them out of that muck, right? We'd pull them out of that muck, and then they'd stand there while the others would do it. Junior hires love that stuff, by the way. They just think it's the coolest thing. And, 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 uh, and so one year, we had just a, a huge group of campers, and uh, the, they decided that they wanted the fresh starters that's a different part of the camp to do the same thing. And so I offered to do it. So I had to take a group of junior hires and do that. So I'm full of mud. And then I had to walk about a mile with those campers back to the main camp, p- pick up the next group of campers, and walk in that hot sun, right, where it's just starting to cake onto me. And I'd get there, and then I would do it again. Of course, I had to be in the mud, so I had to do everything that they did. And so then I did that, and I did that about four times, back and forth. By the end of that, you can imagine how much I wanted to get that muck off of me, right? And, of course, I can't go into the showers like that. I would have plugged up the showers. I would have plugged up the drains. So I just headed straight for the lake, and uh, I just jumped in the line and said, Excuse me, I'm, I'm going down the water slide, and I just went straight into the lake to, because... Because there was that desire just to be clean. That's the, that's the imagery that I, I get when I read verse 2 of Psalm 51. David would say, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my... I just want to be clean. The law does that for us. Because we recognize our sinfulness. We recognize that God is just uh, uh, to, uh, to judge us. So we could beg for mercy and now we have a desire to be clean. Isn't it interesting that the scripture James uh, uses... The, the example of, of a mirror for scripture and he says it's like looking into a mirror why because you see what's wrong with yourself and you can fix it that's that's what the what the the bible does that's what the the, the law when we read what's right and what's wrong it tells us what needs to be done and uh, uh of course usually we look a little worse than the sky up there but that's that's the that's the way it is Let's continue in verse, th- uh, verse 5 of Romans and see where, uh, where the Jews took it from there. And as Paul foresaw their questions coming up. But in verse 5, this is what we read. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. His whole argument, he goes back to, but wait a minute. If God punishes me, what does that show about him? His righteousness. You see, for the, for the Jews, for those who listened and obeyed and God blessed them, did that show anything about God to the nations around them? Yes. But then when they disobeyed and God did exactly what he said, doesn't that still show the nations around them the truth about God? So, so they're wanting credit for the fact that they've, they've shown the world around them how great, how great God is through their disobedience. Does that make sense? But it shows how much, how far the human spirit is willing to go to say, I need some credit in this. I need to have some credit in this. Guess what? If you're wanting some credit in your salvation, then you're in the wrong religion. Because every other religion, every other religion is going to give you an opportunity to earn credit. But guess what? They're false. They're not going to lead you where you want to go. 
This is the only way. This is the truth. And so that's how, how Paul responds. Look at verse 6. Certainly not. One of the other times in the book of Romans that we find this, ooh, may, this certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? God can't judge based on that standard. That's a human standard. It, does, it makes absolutely no sense. So they, he goes into a further explanation of that. Um, he, he personalizes it in verse 7. He says, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? That's the question, right? And he goes on to say, verse 8, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. He's saying, some people say, well, if you're a Christian, then just continue sinning then. Right? Just continue doing it because God will be blessed through that. And he's saying, that is not, that's slander. That is not what Christianity is about. That's not what, what God's word says. He says, your condemnation is just. That's what the Bible is saying. We deserve the condemnation that God has proclaimed us. We're guilty. We're guilty. So what's the bottom line? Are the religious better off than the pagans? We've studied the pagans earlier. Are the religious better than the pagans? Look what, it, look what Paul said in verse 9. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. See, now to kind of wrap up everything we've talked about in the, in the book of Romans... Everything we've talked about, we've got the pagan, we've got uh, the typical pagan. I just put a picture of a gang member, you know, but pagans show up in all shapes and sizes and breeds, right? But I just chose one. But what did we, what did we learn? We learned that they ignore God. That leads to impurity, right? And then that impurity eventually leads to indecency, where they're even going against nature. That's what Romans 1 talked about. And eventually, inhumanity, where they're no longer reflecting the image of God. We, we saw all of that. But now we've seen in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we've seen that the religious aren't any better off because they have the knowledge of the law, but yet they're still lawbreakers. And so that, produces, that blasphemes God with their hypocrisy. So which one is better off? Well, Paul says they are all under sin. The idea is you, you get this image of drowning uh, because we're under sin. We're not riding on sin. We're not riding the waves of sin. We're drowning in sin. That's, the, that's human nature. So then we find this description then of what mankind is apart from God. What is mankind apart from God? Well, Romans, verse, uh, Romans uh, 3.10 through 20 gives us this description and I don't think it's very pretty. But this is a description of mankind from God's perspective. If you really want to know what God thinks, this is what we're going to see. And we're, there are seven accurate descriptions of mankind. I'll fly through these, but th listen to them. Well, number one, they're unrighteous. We're unclean. We're contaminated by sin. We've been in the bog multiple times and baked in the sun. Right? That's how God sees, sees us. We're contaminated by it. All of us. Number two... What does he say in verse 11? Uh, verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, there is none who understands. So not only are we contaminated, we don't even understand that we're contaminated. Does that make sense? We don't even understand. We don't get it. 
Uh, it, it, it's, to me, it's kind of like looking at modern art. You can stare at it all day long, and you're left with, what does this mean? Now, do we have any modern artists in here? I'm sorry if I offended you. But I could look at this all day and not get what it's, what it's saying, right? Um, um, but because people look for meaning then. They look for meaning in all sorts of places. Uh, when you think about it, uh, some look for meaning through meditation, right? You look for, when you look at mankind, people look for, for meaning in all sorts of things. They look for it in meditation. Some look for it in science, as if you could find some equation that will tell you the meaning of life. Uh, Others find it in poetry. Here's a little poem that, uh, that I found. It says, You will find meaning in life only if you create it. Interesting thought. And it goes on to say, It is not lying there somewhere behind the bushes, so you can go and search a little bit and find it. It is not there like a rock that you will find. It is, a, it is poetry to be composed. It is a song to be sung. It is a dance to be danced. Maybe you'll find meaning in, in, in art or something like that. People, people look for What is the meaning of life? According to James Frey, this is whatever you want it to be. What's the meaning in that? They don't even understand that they're lost. Right? Or, or take uh, the, the, uh, the radio broadcast that became a series of books that also became a movie, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, there, they came up with the answer to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. And you know what it came out to be? Here's the answer. No one's writing this down? The answer is, anyone know? 42, right? 42. That's the answer to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Of course, then they say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. That's the whole point. Yeah, you can't make sense of it. Eventually, they find out that the, you have to have the right question for the, meaning, for the answer to make sense. And the answer, to the, the question became, what is six times nine? There's some math people in here, right? Six times nine is what? Is it 42? No. And that's the whole point. You can't have a question and an answer that fit. It's just, you can't find meaning in life. So man, mankind is like that. We're lost. We're lost. Jack Candy, the comedian, uh, once, once said, said, to really understand mankind, you have to look at the two words that make up the word mankind. Mank and int. What do those words mean? No one knows, which is why we will never understand mankind. <laughs> it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We're unclean, we're unrighteous, and we don't even understand that we're unrighteous. That's how God sees mankind. It goes on to say in verse 12, or in verse 11, the second half, it says, there, there is none who seeks after God. Man does not seek after God. Some of you might say, wait a minute, hold on, Pastor Dave. Aren't there a lot of people out there who seek after God? I mean, why are there so many religions in the world? And I would, I would propose that there are a lot of people seeking a God, but seeking the God isn't what we do by nature. We don't want to subject ourselves to a supreme being. We want to create it. In fact, we'll go to any length to come up with some kind of belief structure besides that, even believing in things that we make up ourselves. Isn't that true? And where did religions come from? In fact, look at what Isaiah 2 says. Their land is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. Think about it. They make it, and then they lift it up, and they worship it. They worship the work of their own hands, that which they have, their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. There's no excuse for that. They know better. I gave them a brain. Right? But, but mankind, by willing, suppresses the truth 
invents their own religion. We don't seek after God by nature. Goes on to say that they've turned away from anything of value. Look at verse 12. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Turn away from anything that's profitable. By nature, that's what we do. Goes on to say, their words betray their rotten souls. And I said, Pastor Dave, that, you're pushing that too far. Look at what, Ro- what Romans 3 says and tell me that that isn't an accurate description of verses 13 and 14. It says, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Do you see the imagery there? It's almost like it's just coming up and spewing out. See how it starts in the throat, then work its way up the tongue, then it comes out the lips, and then it's all over the mouth. Isn't that what we read? I mean, that's the picture. That's the imagery that we get. I was reading in one of the commentaries where it talked about uh, the mouth is full of cursing. And it said, if you do not believe that the mouth is full of cursing, go up to the next person you see and slap them in the mouth and see what falls out. (laughs) So I thought, i got to try this out. And you would not believe the words that came out of Alan Troop's mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Alan, I had to say that. If I thought you even asked him today, I said, can I rip on you today? He said, yeah, you know me. So, no, I did not slap him in the mouth. But isn't it true? It's the first thing that comes out of people's mouths as soon as you step on their toes or get in their way or, or, or bother them. And anyway, it's, it's the nature of mankind. Our words will betray what's really going on inside of us. It goes on to say, but they leave, a, they leave violence and destruction in their path. Look at verses 15 through 17. Let this description. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Wow. Uh, uh, Ray C. Stedman, who's um, one of the, commentar- uh, the commentators that I've been reading a lot of his stuff and studying for, uh, for Romans, said, wherever man goes, ruin follows. And when you think about it, here's a picture, a beautiful picture of God's creation, right? Nice river. Beautiful. Here's a river where there are a lot of people nearby. Contaminated. It's, it's by nature. This is what we do. Um, did you know that 108 million people were killed in wars just in the 20th century alone? Killed. You know, I, as I was fact-checking this to make sure the stats were right, I came across all sorts of interesting things. Did you know that more, more people have been killed by their own governments than by other people's governments in the 20th century? Think about that. Wow. I mean, that's corruption. As people gain authority, they start killing even their own. Here's some other thoughts. Since 1973, over 58 million innocent babies have been aborted just in the United States alone. That doesn't drop your jaw. I don't know what will. Innocent babies. You'd think of all people. Innocent babies. Uh, Since 1980, over 1.3 billion innocent babies have been aborted on our planet. Billion with a B. Can you imagine that? They leave violence and destruction in their path. 
That's the nature of mankind. Unbridled nature of mankind. That's where it goes. And it's easy to point fingers at others. That's where we would be if we followed our natures. Isn't it? That's the path. That's where we would go. And then verse 18 brings it full circle. They have no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It takes all the way back to the beginning. Where did this whole thing start? Romans 1. For the wrath of God is being revealed because of the ungodliness. What does that mean? Taking God out of the equation. There's no fear of God before their eyes. If you do not fear God, this is where we will head. This is where we will end up. If you do not fear God. What does Proverbs 9, 10 say? And all through Proverbs, it says the fear of God, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point. When you have the fear of God, now you can continue and you can start moving towards wisdom. But if you take out that first point, then you're not even in the starting line. Try and win a race without ever crossing the starting line. It just doesn't work. Right? And so if, if that's the direction you want to go, you've got to begin with the fear of God. You take the fear of God out of the equation and you are in trouble. So why does the law exist? To put the fear of God in us. That's why the law exists. And if you think of it, the root of all of this, as we learned in, in, in Romans 1, it's the godlessness. It's it's the exact opposite. It's the antithesis of the fear of God. It's the godlessness. And that's why things end up the way they end up. So what role does the law play in all of this? Well, Paul spells it out. He's taught it all through his examples, but now he spells it out in verses 19 and 20. And we'll close with these two verses. This is where we read this. Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. It goes on verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Finally, he spells it out. He's been leading us to this conclusion all along, and now he spells it out. No one gets saved by the law. The law exists so we have knowledge, awareness of our sin. That's, that's the, the point. No one is justified by it, but God is proven just. And we are proven guilty. It doesn't save. It puts the fear of God into the person so that we can respond appropriately. So we can beg for mercy. So we can desire to be clean. We can acknowledge our sin. And we can un- Appreciate salvation. Do you see how important that, that key component is into understanding what salvation is really all about? What about you? I want to ask you today four simple questions. Number one, have you underestimated the gravity of your sinfulness? This is our last week studying the doctrine of sin uh, uh, at this depth, um, but so now's the time to evaluate this for real. Have you underestimated the gravity of your sinfulness? Or have you put yourself on some scale and thought, well, at least I'm better than some and not as good as others. Okay, I might not be up here with so-and-so, but, but at least, hey, at least I'm better than Alan Troop. Or, just kidding, Alan. <laughs> no. But you know what we do? We, we put ourselves in scales and we... Have you put yourself there? Have you underestimated the gravity of your sin? 
I mean, all these things, when you hear this description of mankind, you're thinking, yes, amen, amen, that's other people. Yes, the world. Or you recognize it, yes. All, be it not for the grace of God, that's where I would be. That's the direction I would go if I followed my nature. You recognize the gravity of your sinfulness. Do you justify yourself based on some human standard? Maybe even if you take God's word and say, well, I'm going to take some human standard of how well people can apply God's word and I'm going to put myself in there and hey, I'm pretty obedient. I, I don't do some of the bad things. It's not what it's about. Do you recognize that God would be just to judge you and condemn you for your sins? Now, whether you've accepted salvation or not, these are good questions to ask ourselves because we should be renewing that thought every day. Maybe God's already forgiven you for your sins and you know I, you, that's great, but do you recognize it every day and say, yeah, I understand. And then we appreciate God's grace every day because of what he gives us. Or maybe you've never come to that point where you really realize the gravity of your sin. You didn't realize that you have offended God and that he would be just to condemn you. If so, then th- today's the day. Would you like to be forgiven? Well, we're going to study the doctrine of salvation out. We're going to see that. We're going to hit that very clearly as, as we get further into Romans chapter 3. And as we go further along, we're going to hit that. But I don't want to wait. If there's anyone here today that for the first time, they're getting it. I understand it, and I believe that God would be just to condemn me today. I don't want you to leave today without hearing the good news. In just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And we have people, they'll have a little lanyard that just says, ask me. And I want you to go up to one of them and just say, show me. And that's all you've got to say. And they will show you from God's word how you can know for sure that all of your sinfulness is forgiven. Because the good news isn't that we recognize our sin. The good news is when we recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the complete price for all of our sin. And if that's the gift that you'd like to accept today, then by all means, do not walk outside these doors and take the chance that you might die in your sin and spend eternity. And you might stand before God and have to admit, Lord, you are just in what you're about to do to me. Don't be that person. Take advantage of that opportunity. Maybe you're a believer today, and, and uh, today is just an opportunity for you to say, oh, wow, I realize the depth of my sin, and I just want to say, Lord, I appreciate you. And thank you for the forgiveness of the sin that you've offered. I'd invite you to come forward. You can pray that to the Lord. You can do it right from your seat. But we should walk out of here a little bit more grateful when we understand the sinfulness from God's perspective. Amen? Let's, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And in just a moment, we'll sing together. And I'll give you an opportunity to respond. But while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to ask you, is there any... Has there been a time when you have made the decision and you know for sure that you have asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of all of your sins? If you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's you, can you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, yes, I, I know. And I know that I am on my way to heaven because I know that Jesus Christ has already forgiven me of my sins. Excellent. All right, you can put your hands down. Now I want to ask, no one else is looking around. This has nothing to do with anybody else. But is there anyone here today I said, Pastor Dave, I'm not sure that if I were to die today, that I would spend an eternity in heaven. 
There's no shame in, in that. In fact, that's what the purpose of the law is for, to show us that. Is there anyone here today that would say, I don't know for sure. Would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. I just want to know, and I could pray for you. Is there anyone like that? And as we sing, just a moment after we pray, as we sing, I want you to take advantage of this time. And just go to the back, and there'll be someone there to meet you. Or if you're a believer, come forward and just spend a little time alone with God. I'm, we're not going to bother you. It's between you and God. But don't let today slip by without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where you'll spend eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you don't let us sway your judgment, but you judge by what is right, unadulterated truth. But Lord, I recognize my sinfulness because of that standard. Lord, it causes me to be so overwhelmed by your mercy grace. I thank you for my salvation, Lord, and I pray that if there's anyone here that has not experienced that same salvation, they would not walk out of here today without that. I pray this in Christ's name.